Hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Sarah DeFores. And I'm Victoria Banks. This is The Table, a podcast by and about women in the entertainment industry. Welcome to a special episode for Grammy Week, a conversation with researcher Jada Watson about her newly released report on BIPOC women in country music. So pull up a chair and get nice and comfy because everyone deserves a seat at The The Table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think and don't let them stop you. Stop you, don't don't let them stop. Stop you, don't don't let them stop you. Jada Watson holds a PhD in musicology from Université Laval and a Master of Information Studies from the University of Ottawa. Her research focuses on issues of identity, gender, and class, specifically in country music. We had a conversation with Jada about women in country music for one of our season two episodes, but we felt that her new research regarding BIPOC artists, Black, Indigenous, and people of color deserves its own conversation. Here we are with Jada Watson. So we have Jada Watson uh, back with us. This is a very special episode because it relates directly to what is happening in the world of music, specifically the world of country music. And it touches a lot on what our world is going through at the moment. And we have Jada Watson here to kind of help put all of this into context for us. Uh, Jada, can you explain a little bit about what you do and specifically the work that we're going to be talking about today? Sure. So I'm a researcher at the University of Ottawa, and I'm interested in issues related to equity, diversity, and inclusion, sort of in the popular music industry at large, um, because that certainly comes into my teaching, but as a researcher specifically with country music. And so for the last, oh gosh, like five or six years now, I've been doing research um, related to charts for country music, starting with Billboard and then working into media bases, airplay reports. Um, And that work was done largely in consultation with Women Nashville. Um, And over the last couple of years, I've started to curate new data sets that would be looking at representation through more than just um, gender, because as we all know, um, there's considerable racial inequity in the genre, as well as a disparity for LGBTQIA plus artists. And so it's been a bit, it's taken a little bit longer to get the data sets ready, um, just by the nature of, you know, some artists don't have as much of a web presence as others to be able to um, to do the research, to be able to identify them. Um, So what we're going to talk about today is looking at a study that that brings race and ethnicity um, to the fore of these discussions of inequity in country music. Um, And it's it's an interesting discussion to have for a variety of reasons, but it's also it's it's a really challenging type of study to do because with such considerable presence of white artists, um, it is it is often hard to really understand the sort of weight of the situation on uh, a BIPOC artist in the industry. You're really digging in with this data too. I mean, you're going back as far as 2002, is that where you started? Somewhere way back Yeah. There? Yeah, so you're looking at patterns over a really long period of time here. This isn't just gonna be a blip on the recent radar that you're that you're seeing. It's 
it's really the way the industry has been working for a long time. Well, and in fact, back to the beginning, and we can kind of start there. I I do actually have Billboard's Hot Country Songs data dating back to... um, 1944 when the chart started it was a folk um a jukebox chart that tracked folk record sales that was sort of considered the first of the country charts before it was called the country singles chart um but but the problems that we see today are certainly not new right like this was an industry Um, that was founded on systemic racism, on the intentional segregation of artists um, into sort of two streams of categories. And those categories have become musical genres. And so on the one hand, you have um, a marketing category of um, hillbilly music, music that was marketed uh, for a rural white audience and the artists that were recording that were predominantly white artists. And then there was race records, which was predominantly black artists. And that music was marketed and promoted to an urban uh, black market. And so these sort of, um, these marketing categories that upheld the recording, the early recording industry have really not budged throughout the entire history of the popular music industry. Hillbilly becomes country music and race records becomes soul and R&B. And throughout the history of the development, let's for focusing on, on country music, as Nashville centralized in the 1950s as the, the center of the country music business, um, that that sort of whiteness, the white racial framing of these categories solidified and became even more um, a part of a mission. And so, you know, this, the, there's a lot of really great research that points to this for anyone who's interested in learning more about, you know, that early segregation of these categories can read Carl Hagstrom Miller's book. Um, And uh, there's about to be a dissertation on the topic of the country music business and racial segregation. Um, that'll be Amanda Martinez's work, um, hopefully coming out soon. And she's, I think, really going to reshape what we know about the country music industry because this period she's looking at, which is like the mid 60s to the 90s, is like the era when Charlie Pride um, emerges as an artist. and when he when he emerges like it's this shortly after we have Linda Martell who comes out and then there's um a whole slew of other black artists who are releasing music in this era um there's women like um Virginia Kirby and Barbara Cooper and then Ruby Falls but then there's a whole bunch of men Stony Edwards Obi Obi McClinton um Big Al Downing but what her research shows um I'm probably going to get this wrong, but what I what I've what I observe her research to show is that despite the fact that music country music comes from a place um, uh, like a multiracial environment where black uh, musicians have such a prominence um, alongside uh, white artists that and then the despite the rise of um, a large number of black artists throughout the entire history that whenever the industry is going through a transition, it sort of clamps down on um, this white racial framing that it's had since the beginning. So you get to 2000 
and you know you have such an underrepresentation of black artists and it's not because they're not there um and the same would be true of hispanic and latinx artists and indigenous artists asian artists so anyone who is not white and who wants to be in this space has comes up against extra barriers when trying to get in that's so interesting um considering the historical roots of all of this and seeing where it's coming from it's no accident that it is the way it is and so so what are you seeing when you're looking at this data are you seeing patterns what are you seeing yeah i'm seeing a lot of really interesting things although of course not surprising things so first and foremost we're seeing that representation is well into the 90s for white artists so whether you're looking at um the number of unique um, artists. So taking out all the repetitions of songs and just looking at the the, the unique instances of artists. Um, when we look at percentage uh, of con- white country artists, it's like 98% a white space. Um, and then when we start to to look at representation of, of BIPOC artists, we see that just 0.6% of the unique artists in the last 20 or so years has been a black artist. Uh, 0.8% is an artist of color. And I, and I hate that I've grouped them together, but otherwise it's almost impossible to graph representation of biracial artists, Hispanic Latinx artists, indigenous artists, and Filipino artists who all, you know, come together um, to sort of fill out our picture of representation. I know I'm looking at these graphs that you sent us and it's hard visually to wrap your head around it when you're looking at these bar graphs that are, you know, the 98, 99%, and then you have this tiny blip at the bottom that shows any other representation outside that Caucasian artist box. And it's just, it's really stunning when you look at it visually like this uh, in front of you. And for any listeners who may not know as much about the context in which all of the charting and the path that country music has taken started. Um, I don't I don't know if either of you have had the chance to check out our native daughters, the the group, but also the the documentary that just came out. uh, Leslie Fram, who's going to be one of our future guests in this season, she partnered with our Native Daughters and CMT and um, the Smithsonian Channel to do a discussion on the documentary, which if you don't know about it, please go check it out. It's incredible. But I know that it, it, a few things popped into my head when you were speaking about what was it, 1944, when the first, you know, considered chart happened. Um, I know that when they were talking in that documentary, one of the women is a banjo player. And she was speaking about how much people were like, why are you playing banjo? That is, even an instrument was colorized and and racialized. And they were speaking about how that was originally a Native African instrument that was just adapted within US music and um, then put into all these categories. But um, that I think we don't, we just aren't educated as a society, as a country, enough to understand just how much of our considered normal society and understanding and historical knowledge has been appropriated and twisted and kind of covered up. And even when they were talking about, you know, 
black fiddle players and uh, instrumentalists they weren't allowed to enter the competitions and so therefore it was like they never existed and so people didn't know that they could do that or didn't feel like they could be in those spaces because oftentimes they weren't allowed to. Um, and so I think it's important to recognize that our country and country music and genres and, and systems as a whole are when they're based in that, it is impossible to know just how much we are missing, um, which is is what you were touching on. But I think it's it's difficult for people who don't look at the data to realize how deeply embedded um, those kinds of things are. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about any types of roadblocks that you came up against when you were trying to find the numbers and the data and the information. If there were things where you're like, there's just no database for this, or there's no context for this. Yeah, no. And thank you for that. I mean, it's, it's very true. A lot of what is part of country music culture sort of even you know broader than the musicians who play it to the to the instruments to um to customs that might um you know be forms of dancing and forms of socializing the like a lot of these traditions are born of a of a um of a non-white space um and then they get brought into the country music space and because black people have not uh, have not been let in um, then over time, it, uh, that history and that story gets whitewashed. Um, and so it's like they were never there, even though the traces of the traces of black culture and music is everywhere in country music. Um, and that's extraordinarily prevalent in 21st century country music when you start to hear bands like Florida Georgia Line, and other male ensembles who draw heavily from hip hop and rap. Um, and, and there's always been a very like a cross genre blending, but, but there's often little acknowledgement from where, for where it comes from. And that, that really, that really has to stop, um, to, to say that this music is not influenced, inspired by, stolen from, um, uh, the black population, indigenous musicians, Latinx and I mean Latinx and Hispanic artists are often um, uh, not brought into this conversation as well. And a lot of a lot of the traditions that are part of this white framed country music comes from these cultures. Um, so barriers to doing this research, I mean, it, there there are certainly barriers. Um, the the data was like the easy part, getting access to weekly playlists, you know, um, I, I pay for a, a license every month to get access to these, to these reports. Um, but I guess the, the harder part would be doing research on artists. Um, many, many of whom don't have, um, a large digital footprint. So it takes a little bit longer to find them. And, and Thankfully, I'd been doing a lot of this work for a while anyway, so that when it came time to work on this data set in this way, I, I'd already had done a significant amount of research. Um, and one of, the, one of the sort of basic sources that helps me with this, um, I don't know if you know Joel Whitburn, um, he builds these chart catalogs and every artist has their own entry and they have their little biographical blurb. So, as a as a starting point for me this book was really helpful because 
you know, for an artist in the 50s or 60s or even like up into the 90s who I can't find online um, easily, um, there's a little a little blurb on where they're from. The interesting piece here um, and starts that starts to become sort of more prevalent the deeper in you go is that black artists and Mexican artists are always identified as black, black and Mexican, but a white artist is never um, identified as white. And, and it's really striking to think like you can almost assume that if they don't have a descriptor that they are white and quite often they're not, (laughs) they often have an indigenous background that, that is not um, included in there. Yeah, and it wouldn't necessarily work in their favor to own that publicly when they're working in this genre. So they probably would have tried to blend in as much as possible under the circumstances. Yeah. So I'm so grateful for that book because that was a great place to start. And and then there's like back archives of Billboard and other radio and industry magazines that uh, are great because they also come with like... Um, advertisements and stuff so you can also see oh well this artist like had um had these types of marketing and promotional materials at this time so um i'm like another nod to amanda martinez like she's been tweeting a lot of the photos that she sees through her research and they're just just really great because we're so used to opening these trade magazines and seeing advertisements for white men and white women and to to open one up and see Black women have always been part of this space. It's it's um, it's distressing that they're not still uh, that there aren't as many, um, but it's heartening to see that that there are traces that we can start to pull to the fore, so we can learn their stories and reclaim and and restate that history. Can you give us like a breakdown of some of the stats? Because I'm looking at these graphs and. I mean, these numbers are staggering and insane to look at in a graph like Victoria said. But can you list off those stats for us and talk about, you know, any context that is needed? But really, I think it helps people to hear the numbers and to hear what that actually means. When you really look at it, I think it's very easy nowadays to to think, oh, it's getting better. So oftentimes that's when we drop the ball when we think it's getting better so we don't have to put in as much effort and it sometimes looks like it's getting better and then we have a tendency to backslide really bad and even when it gets better it's still not even close to good um so can you give us a a breakdown of some of those numbers and and talk a little bit more about that yeah first you're right it is so easy to um to think that there's progress where progress isn't being made The fact that we have today Darius Rucker, Jimmy Allen, Kane Brown, Mickey Guyton, um, these are four artists who have had radio airplay in the last year. We can add to this Blanco Brown as well. Um, But but only Darius Rucker and Jimmy Allen and Kane Brown are getting airplay at the level of a white man. And so that's not progress. Three three um, BIPOC men does not diversity make, um, and so it's really important to remember that we're we're really not we're not even at a point of like having a diversity conversation. We're just not there. So if we look at 
on country format radio between 2002 and 2020, when we're looking at the number of unique uh, BIPOC artists that have had songs played on country radio, um, 3% of them are, are BIPOC artists, 2% are Black artists, and 1% are artists who are biracial, Hispanic or Latinx, Indigenous or Filipino Americans. Um, and so when we start to then think how often um, are songs by these artists played, uh, it reduces to 2%. So 1% for Black artists and, and the other percent for um, artists who are Indigenous, Hispanic, Latinx, um, or Filipino artists. And so over this 20-year period, what what is disheartening to see is that there's, um, it's a 1.6% average of uh, songs played on radio are by BIPOC artists. And uh, that number can be really, can be really deceiving, of course, because it accounts for all the years where there's almost 0%. Um, and that's really important to sort of clarify, because what we're actually seeing between 2002 and 2020 is an increase from 0.3% uh, in 2002 um, to 3.2%. Uh, by the end of 2020. Um, and then in between there, it sort of fluctuates. And so one thing that I've observed through this is that you can almost define three different periods um, uh, based on airplay. And so between 2002 and 2007, um, the number of songs and spins in this period averages about 0.5% by BIPOC artists. Um, and then from 2007 to 2014, it increases because um, Darius Rucker um, starts to release music as a country artist. Reese Palmer, Crystal Shawanda, and Stardy Aslan all enter the genre, and they're all like those four artists are all kind of on radio tour together, not not together, but at the same time. Um, so representation increases to about 1.5% between in this period, specifically looking at 2008 to 10, when it's 1.5%. Then in um, 2015 and tw to 2020 emerges as sort of a third period, because that's when we start to see um, the most increase. And, and it feels very strange to say that because we're still talking about... It's all relative. Right, right. Like, so you're moving from about 1.4, 1.5% up to 3.2% annually. Um, and this is the period when uh, Mickey Guyton emerges and uh, Jimmy Allen, Kane Brown, Blanco Brown um, as well. And what's disheartening across this entire period, whether we're talking about the number of songs or the airplay for these songs, um, it's that most of that 0.5, 1.5, or 3.2% is for songs by um, male BIPOC artists. Um, BIPOC female artists are the most um, underserved in this genre. So whether it was Reese, Crystal, Shawanda, or Stardy Aslan in 2007-8, or Mickey Guyton in 2015 and 2020, um, there's no period basically where BIPOC women receive even 1% of the airplay on country format radio. 
So it's like you take what women, what white women are up against in trying to break into country radio, and then you kind of basically multiply that by itself to find out what BIPOC women are up against. I mean, it's the it's like a, a fraction of a fraction. Yeah, I'm reading I'm reading this great book that is actually about um, systemic racism, sort of from an economic standpoint. That has actually really helped me understand this, and I. Sh- I should say thank you to Hunter Kelly for for sharing this work with me. It's called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And she says that when it comes to systemic racism, systemic racism hits its target first and worst, but ultimately, ultimately um, implicates everybody. Uh, And so what we see here in country music is sort of like a a data representation of that, right? Because it's it's hit the black indigenous and artists of color worst and there has never been even even in the days when charlie pride was like racking up number ones there was never a point in this genre in this genre's history where bipoc artists represent more than more than two percent of charts um but by by having such strong barriers against artists of color in this space it actually does impact white artists as well. And and I by no means want to, you know, take this conversation and shine a spotlight on white artists and, and talk about how they're underserved. But systemic racism um, impacts everybody and it impacts the whole ecosystem. Um, so I think it's really important that this discussion is happening because we need to understand the target of systemic racism always feels it the hardest. But if we don't start to understand how it implicates the whole industry or how it how it ripples across the whole industry, we're never, ever, ever going to fix the problem. That's an amazing point. And um, it reminds me of a portion of our chat with Todd Cassidy that'll happen later in this season. He was talking about how, you know, just as with gender issues, you know, when we tell women that they're weak and emotional you inherently tell men that they only can be strong and unemotional it even when someone is at the top of the pile they still are gonna have something and he was talking also about you know the issues that women have in the industry also directly correlates to um the homogenization of men and male content and you know where we see so much of it over flooding the system um but i want to bring it to another aspect of these stats which is you know when these plays for bipoc artists uh, happen which uh, as you told us in your breakdown um, before we had this conversation was mostly at night and also i think for people who don't understand the industry it's complicated if you're in this industry we still don't even know what's going on a lot of the time um and when i read that um i don't remember the exact dates um that you provided but mickey was the first black female country artist to be signed to a major label and that just happened i mean within the last couple of years and i had never realized that it's really difficult to understand the hierarchy of boutique labels and pubs versus the major ones and what that means for how everything gets dispersed but um can we talk a little bit more about 
the what day-to-day all of those stats look like and because that is a conscious decision to only play at night or to not sign any BIPOC artists to major labels. Absolutely. And I should say, actually, maybe I'll start with, with the latter, uh, the second question there. Um, Mickey Guyton in 2020, in, in the 21st century, has had more historic moments um, than anybody should have in the 21st century. So in 2016, she was the first uh, black female artist to ever be nominated for a country industry award when she was nominated for female vocalist, um, new female vocalist with the ACMs. So she's the only black female artist. That's the only nomination. And she is the only black female artist to have an ACM or CMA nomination in the history of this industry. She was the first black female artist to perform her own work on the ACM stage. And my understanding is that there has yet to be the same on the CMA stage. She's the first solo female black artist to be nominated for a Grammy. She's the first to sign to a major label in 2011. Um, She does not have the highest ranking song by a black female artist. That goes to Linda Martell, who reached 22 um, on the Billboard charts in 1969. That's the highest ranking song by a black female artist. Mickey comes in second there with um, Better Than You Left Me at 30. The highest BIPOC female artist of all time is Crystal Shawanda, who had a number 19 song in 2008. So it's really, it's really interesting to think about the kind of practices that, that endure in this industry where Charlie Pride is actually you know, the fifth in terms of number ones um, within, the, within the billboard chart system from between, in the period of looking at 44 to 2016, um, he comes in fifth with the fifth most number one songs um, and a black female artist has yet to even break the top 20. Um, so these statistics are, are truly, I mean, the only word I can come up with is disgusting when we're thinking about the fact that we're in 2020 and there's still historic records being broken for black female artists. Um, so, so then sort of turning to airplay, um, for those who don't know, there are five, um, five day parts in the radio day. Midnight to 6 a.m. is considered the overnights. 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. would be the morning, the morning period, the morning drive. 10 to 3 is midday. 3 to 7 in the evening is like the afternoon drive, and then 7 to midnight is considered the evenings. Prime time in radio are those two drive periods from 6 to 10 in the morning and then from 3 to 7 in the evening. Those are, the, those are peak points in the day when you want to have your songs played because those when the most uh, people are listening. Uh, stuck in their car in traffic, they're going to listen to the favorite radio station. You want your music played in those day parts. Um, for so many reasons, evenings and overnights are when the most airplay happens in general because it's when the least uh, amount of like specialty programming is happening, right? So you don't really have somebody doing interviews and news and weather and all those sort of pre-canned things that happen all the time. So you have more airplay in those periods just by virtue of having less on-air personality. But as a result, 
it means that that's where a lot of the programming goes for underrepresented artists in country uh, country music. And for a long time, um, that's when new music was tested. It was actually put into the overnights first and you had to sort of test well in the overnights to get out of the overnights and into daytime programming. Um, and so when we look at, um, there's that one chart in this report that has the breakdown for time of day for 2020. I wanted to do the whole period, but it's so misleading when there are so many years when there are no spins um, for for a BIPOC artist that it, um, it doesn't really help understand uh, well. So I did it for 2020 only because I wanted to keep in context that this is, this is a year when Mickey Guyton released three of the most critically acclaimed songs in the genre. And um, most of her airplay happened in the evening and overnights. So in the course of this calendar year, uh, or last calendar year for 2020, she her three songs, uh, What Are You Gonna Tell Her, Black Like Me, and um, Haven't Down Here, and there's a little bit of airplay for Bridges, received a total of 1,085 spins. And that was not enough for any one of those songs to reach into a chart. Um, they all hovered um, well outside uh, the highest ranking reached number 76. Um, but the bulk of that airplay um, happened in the evenings and overnights. And so 27% of those spins for her happened in the evenings and 43.6% um, occurred in the overnights. And like all of her spins total amount to 0.01% of the airplay for 2020. So, so it's interesting because if you follow any of this conversation on Twitter, you follow Mickey Guyton on Twitter, you follow just people getting excited about her music. For a lot of people, 2020 was the year in which they discovered her. Because if they were listening to the radio back in 2015, when Better Than You Left Me was on, despite it being an incredibly popular song when it was first debuted, most of her airplay then was also in the overnights because that's how they break new music. So if radio is your means of um, finding new music, how are you going to find new music by an artist uh, whose music is redlined into the evening and overnights? You're not going to because nobody is discovering new music at that period. You're sleeping. And there are certainly people who listen, but they're not necessarily listening in the same way. Um, and it's actually, this is really great timing for us to have this discussion because last week was CRS. Um, and there was this great panel called Talk Data to Me um, on the first day. And one of the researchers that was, that was there was talking about um, breaking songs and he actually said the days of breaking songs in the evenings and overnights are over and he said testing needs to happen in those prime day spots of the morning and the evening especially now when we're all in various stages of the quarantine and like very few people are actually commuting to work right now so airplay has to happen when people are up and listening I'm curious what this all means when it comes to streaming and playlists, because that's a whole other arena. And I want to know if you've looked into and know much about how this data translates, if it does, and if there are any differences. Because I know for me, like, 
I don't really remember the last time I listened to the radio, um, especially during quarantine. It's all streaming. And so what does that mean for how we're breaking songs, these artists, and how we track this information moving forward? Yeah, it's not really my specialty, but it's something that I think about a lot. Um, so with streaming, you sort you have a few different things that are happening, right? You have curated playlists, and though, but whether it's by Spotify or Apple or Pandora, and those curated playlists are curated by a human. Um, so, so that's not serendipity um, in what's happening on those lists. And I I know that. From the conversations I've had with with individuals that work um, for these organizations, I know that it is work for them to make sure that those are um, um, diverse or equitably created lists. Um, because if they're if they just let the data do the talking and the data being sort of what's happening in the industry writ large, whether it's uh, radio or some other uh, metric, then it will be heavily skewed towards white men. And I know, so I know that those who are curating those lists have to make manual changes to ensure that there, that there's higher representation of BIPOC artists as well as um, white women. So, so it's a very manual thing. The other, the other piece of streaming um, is the way recommender systems um, work. So if you're just going to generate your own playlist or just sort of, you know, go in and hit play um, and see what comes at you, that's that's sort of a more complicated discussion because it's based both on your user history, but also the user histories of people who have similar profiles as you. Um, And so you know, if you identify as um, a country listener um, within one of these spaces, the algorithm for country listeners is is uh, who might listen to mainstream country might look more like radio. Um, and so one thing that I did, oh, I don't even remember when this was now, September, October, 2019 right around right after Martina McBride did her experiment with the recommender system and found that um it took like 12 or 13 refreshes before she got a song by a woman um I did this same thing to see like what is this going to be what is this going to be like based off my user experience on Spotify and I had quite similar results and at the time I was um just thinking about gender representation but of course looking back at that data it is it is incredibly white. Um, all the results from that recommender system, save for like two songs, um, were white uh, were white artists. Um, and to add to that, I'd say white uh, white heterosexual artists. Yeah, I think I mean people don't really realize the trickle down effect that these things have when you're seeing what's charting, when you're seeing your data about what's being played on the radio. That's the tip of the iceberg. And you go back, you trace it back, and you see where it's affecting who's working behind the scenes in the industry. You're seeing not only who the artists are, what they look like, who who are signed to major deals, who are signed to those deals that have money behind them and opportunity behind them and promotion behind them that's necessary to break them to radio. You're also seeing what songwriters, what kind of songwriters are working behind those artists. You're seeing, you know, a, a lot of different parts of the picture. So, and I know, I think you looked at songwriters as well in this study, didn't you, Jada? 
Yeah, and that was hard because in a perfect world, I would be able to do the same kind of um, longitudinal study and look at all of the songwriters who've been signed to a publishing house. Um, But I wasn't able to do that this time. So I looked at the writers responsible for the songs that were nominated for Song of the Year for the ACM and the CMA. And I also looked at the producers. Um, And this is something that if you follow Andrea Williams on Twitter, like she's always saying, like, we have to we have to look at the whole industry. So not surprisingly, if the artists are 98 percent white, the songwriters are are 97, 98 percent white. The producers are 97 to 98 percent white. Um, And there's just one black songwriter in this entire space for these and I I realize it's a very select group of songs, but these are the songs that are often heard the most on radio or in a streaming algorithm. So, and that one black writer um, is Jason Boyd, who wrote on 10,000 Hours with Dan and Shay and Justin Bieber. And um, um, so there's, there's, it's, it's such a widespread problem. Um, and I'm glad that, I'm glad that you pointed that out because it, you know, you have to look beyond the audience, beyond the artist to see, um, you know, how the whiteness pervades through the industry. And it's such a similar construct to the good old boys club that we've heard and talked so much about. It's the same mentality when it comes to race in these industries, because I know as a woman, I've had the experience of not being welcome in rooms, but that person being very popular and very loved by a lot of people. So when it comes to, oh, I don't feel comfortable or welcome in this space, I know I'm probably not going to be asked into or feel welcome in the spaces of a lot of the people that this person works with. And when your circle's big because everybody's buddy-buddy and signed to similar places and everybody's publishers are best friends, it's really hard to feel like there's any kind of door or window or crack that you can crawl through. And I imagine that is hundredfold when it comes to being an artist or writer of color. I know I've had talks with fellow writers and artists about that, especially within the last year or two when it comes to more diversity obviously not a lot of diversity but more um and i do want to pivot to talking about lgbtqia plus um artists and writers and the the data that you've seen in this space for that group of people yeah so i i don't have as many numbers to share but but what I started to see, I mean, at a point of 2020, we know we know more about uh, which artists um, are out and public with with being part of the LGBTQIA um, plus community. So, you know, thank you to the Shelley Wrights who write the books about their experience in Nashville and what it was like to come out, um, but also the book being about, you know, I'm I'm out now. Um, Ty Herndon, uh, Billy Gilman. Um, so there's a there's a handful of artists who who are now um, who are now out and and um, and part of the the queer community in Nashville. 
But a lot of those artists who are in this data set were not at the time that they were in the data set. So it's really, um, it's really tricky to talk about, but we have to talk, we, sh we should be talking about it. So looking at the artists who, um, who are in this data set, there are 10 artists um, who identify as gay um, and only only six of them were out at the time of airplay and they also do not they also are severely underrepresented um you know Shelley Fairchild was dropped from her label in 2005 I believe it was because um because she's gay um Kristen Hall um and Sugarland parted ways um I don't know the exact reasons but my understanding is that this had a role to play in it but think of the artists who who are um who are out now um so brandy clark um had some airplay but not not much and so it's it's a very similar story to to a bipoc artist in this space um and it's it's really devastating to see that you know, there are probably more um, um, gay artists in country music who don't feel safe coming out, um, whether it's for their career or their actual safety, because this, just as this industry has promoted um, whiteness, um, it's also promoted heterosexual um, um or like straight culture. Um, it's also promoted um, being sort of physically able. So this is a space where um, if you if you are a person of color, if you are queer, if you are transgender, if you are um, if you have a disability or an illness, if you are not Christian, you are not welcome. And so a lot of that is really hard to talk about with data because, Sometimes you have no idea, um, and and I'm and sometimes you know, but you can you will certainly not put it in your data if that person is not public. Um, so so it's a really tricky conversation to have. But by but by and large, whether we're talking about artists or songs or airplay, we're having this a similar discussion of what happens to BIPOC women in this space. I was just thinking, there's a lot of stories that are behind those numbers when you're looking at them on a page there's a lot of people's lives in those stories you know and there's a lot of pain in those stories and we know less than the half of it that's for sure we have a long long way to go in country music and i i really hope that we're beginning to take the first step in having these conversations and i think that one of the things that has catalyzed that has been the recent discussion over what happened with Morgan Wallen using being captured on film using the n-word the way the industry did and did not respond to that um the uh the reactions that people had I mean I I have to say I I was on a text chain with Mickey Guyton and my fellow songwriters on what are you going to tell her and the Bridges record and and there were some things she shared with us that um, were said to her and written to her from uh, fans of country music. Um, 
It was incredibly hurtful. It was incredibly eye-opening. It was incredibly ignorant, a lot of what was said. I think people just have a really hard time walking in someone else's shoes when those shoes are different from their own and they don't, unless they're personally affected by something, they have a hard time, you know, going there and understanding it with compassion sometimes. But uh, it it was a very eye-opening thing to to see that happen and to see how quick we are in Nashville as an industry to jump to making excuses for people, to jump to giving them more chances and more chances uh, when they are within that uh, favored class of the, the white male artist that fits in the, in the box and how quick we are to throw people out the window when they're not. Um, so I just really hope that you'll continue doing this work, Jada, and I really hope that you'll continue pushing this and just showing people that, I mean, the numbers don't lie. They don't lie. And we just need to take a really good hard look at everything that we're doing on all the aspects of the industry that are supporting this faulty system. So, um, you know, like my personal reaction after having gone through, I mean, I'm getting emotional talking about it. My personal reaction after having read some of the things that Mickey shared with me was to go out and make some writing appointments with some people of color who are trying to get record deals in Nashville to try and help them write their songs and tell their stories. Maybe there's something I can do to help push someone's career forward with whatever tools I have. I mean, all we can do is just do what's within our personal power to change things, but we have to focus on putting our energy where it needs to go to, to change this. So, and I'm, I'm really grateful that you're doing that, Jada, because this is important work that you're doing and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, that means a lot to me. And I, and what I would add, um, is this work would not exist if it weren't for just the community of people around who are doing similar work with different sources and who, you know, who are just, we're just all trying to push and make, not make, well, we as scholars can't necessarily make change, but we are like pushing for conversations to happen. And, and a lot of this dates back for me with like my own sort of sphere of who's influenced me, like Carl Hagstrom Miller's book, Segregating Sound, reshaped my mind entirely. But, you know, Travis Steimling, who I work with a lot. Um, and, and um, I can't stress enough, like for the work of Charles Hughes, whose book Country Soul talked about like, really redefining what was going on in the studios between Memphis, Nashville and Muscle Shoals. And the work of Amanda Martinez, like she's her dissertation once that is in a book form. Like it's there's no there's no way that it is not going to reshape um, everything that we know about this industry. And and so if this body of work could just be like read um, by everyone, because the longer that people don't know the truth about these histories, where this music comes from, who actually participates in it, 
who who all the musicians were that influenced all the white men that we put up on pedestals as like heroes of the genre. They all were influenced by black musicians. Um, and they all said it, but it all, it doesn't get to be part of those stories. And the longer we perpetuate this white myth that is country music, the longer fans are going to be emboldened to treat Mickey Guyton the way she's treated. Um, the sort of enduring, like the enduringness of that white legacy is, is a kind of behavior within the, the audience and fan base that is completely unacceptable. Um, so, you know, if this work helps anybody have the conversation, great, but it, this work only exists because of the community in which, um, it's sort of unfolding. I, I also want to just touch on saying that I really encourage you to keep talking about this as publicly as you can, um, I'm getting emotional to you. you made me emotional, Victoria. <laughs> Sorry. Um, because I've had a lot of conversations behind the scenes um, with lots of family members over the years. I just posted something the other day. I'm part Filipino and um, I'm an eighth. I'm very white. I was raised very white um, and very aware of my Filipino heritage, but just was not fortunate to be raised really in that. Um, But I have a very large portion of my family that's Vietnamese, um, raised in Northern California with family members that were Mexican. And so we were very um, culturally diverse. Um, And when I started performing and being an artist at like 13, um, anytime anyone found out I was Filipino or uh, of another Asian descent, but found out I was part Asian. It's really hard to describe the um, excitement and love and full unbridled support that I saw like immediately with whether or not they heard me open my mouth and sing. Um, because the underrepresentation is so severe that they just grabbed onto it and held on for dear life. And I got a couple of little girls who were Filipino singers. They were like, I want to be like you. My my dad handles my um, stuff and we're trying to bring this into the Filipino community. And um, I it's very hard to describe how much representation means. And that is as someone who does not have the experience of being a person of color in this country, but personally knows. Um, and I think numbers are really important. Um, so I thank you for that. And I also, like I said, encourage you to be as public as you can and um, speak as directly to these communities as you can because I also toured up and down California at many agricultural fairs where the population was majorly Hispanic and Latinx and even the support that one racial minority gives to another is massive because 
they all know what everybody goes through and when one person of color gets uplifted it's kind of the reverse of the ripple effect you know that you were talking about earlier but it's widely understood as a massive step forward um I'm going to take a second to get on Instagram because there's somebody I want to share. Um, she's an educator who creates graphics and she's been sharing a lot about um, including Asian Americans in your anti-racism. Her handle is Teach and Transform. Her name is Liz Kleinrock. She's incredible, and she even posted something uh, about a history of Black and Asian solidarity, and it was primarily uh, Black Americans and Filipino Americans and how many Black soldiers refused to participate in the war in the Philippines and all that stuff, and I had no idea about that. I was never taught about that in school. And uh, she has a lot of wonderful resources, so I encourage you guys to check her out. But um, every time, Jada, that you said Filipino in your discussion today, I got a little emotional because I don't think I've ever heard anybody even say that. So thank you. I actually saw your Instagram post and and I wasn't going to bring it up unless you brought it up, but I, but I saw it and like... You know, there's so many people who are working in this space. And, and I want to broaden it out to the whole popular music industry because Asian uh, musicians are underrepresented um, in, in all um, genres. And I think it's really important that, that when we talk about representation, it, we have to be talking about um, all ethnicities because... Yes, yes, within North America, um, we're sort of, fa- we're, we're both Canada and the United States have issues, uh, systemic issues with um, how they've treated uh, Black and Indigenous populations, but Asian um, communities have also been discriminated against in both of our countries. Um, and this is largely not taught in the public school system. Um, either at all or adequately to fully understand um, the ways in which different um, uh, different populations from around the world, um, whether they're from the from different parts of the world or born in the United States and they're second generation, third generation, um, the the racism that the that non-white people endure in both countries um, is appalling once you start to learn about it because if you're white you you can grow up not having really witnessed it. Um, and so, you know, here I am about to turn 40 thinking uh, that I'm really learning about our continent's history for the first time as it, like in my 30s and how embarrassing that is, that my white privilege has allowed me to go my whole life with not, with not understanding and not knowing and sort of living with the discomfort of that um, in my mid thirties thinking, well, I have, a, I can change that now because I can get educated. I can reshape the way that I do my work and I can raise my daughter to have the education I didn't have. Um, so, 
you know, am I embarrassed for the way that my white privilege has created those barriers? Absolutely. Um, you know, but I can't, I can't change that. Um, but I can change how I, how I work going forward. Um, so thank you for sharing that because I know it's not easy. And I know, I know that there are so many artists who have Hispanic, Latinx, um, Asian heritage, and they, they don't talk about it because for a variety of reasons, it becomes some, some kind of barrier to their access to things and opportunities within the industry. Um, it, it makes me think of like one sort of final thing that I've been reading about a lot lately called zero sum game theory. Uh, and it's another thing that Heather McGee has written about, but, but this, she, she's talking in her book about how historically, um, there's this idea that one person's gain is proportional to loss for another. And you see that in this industry, whether it's in the form of airplay or label signings or opportunities on a red carpet on a stage, like just, you know, down the line that the success of a BIPOC artist, of an LGBTQIA artist, of an artist with a disability um, is somehow going to take away from a white artist without understanding that the success of an artist from one of these other communities um, is going to be directly proportional to the success of the genre. You're going to broaden it out to a wider fan base. You're going to create an inclusive space. The music will be more diverse. It won't sound all the same. Um, so the more that we, we like get ourselves out of this sort of capitalist mindset that success for one takes away from another, the better off, the better off we're going to be. Amen to that. I love it. To stay up to date on all things The Table on social media, join us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at the handle at sign the table women. Our theme song, Stop You, is written and performed by yours truly, Sarah DeForest, co-written by Taylor Foley and Will Macbeth, and produced by Will Macbeth. And as always, we'll include links to any creatives, music, television, etc. referenced in this episode in the episode notes. We'll see you next time on The The Table. Table. Do what you want, work what you got, say what you think, and don't let them stop you. Stop you, don't let them stop. Stop you.